All right, it's uh, Friday. Normally, that's great. Normally, that's sweet relief. The end of the week. It's freezing outside. Oh, my God. I, I went out last night and grabbed some food. I went out to meet some friends, grabbed a little sugo, you know, just on the fly, some delicious pasta. Oh, what an incredible meatball. Um, and that wind just punched you in the face. It was like, hey, welcome. You thought you were getting no winter? You thought wrong. It's freezing. So everybody bundle up. Get inside and be a captive audience for NHL All-Star Weekend as we all scroll through social media, uh, put the alerts on your Twitter, and wait to see if the Toronto Raptors are going to do something ahead of the deadline. Um, I got Seared Zoe coming up in a couple of minutes of The Ringer. Um, Truly one of my favorite basketball writers ever. Um... Someone who I think just, yeah, very thoughtful in the way she approaches the game. Just a really great mind. And I'm really excited to kind of just share all of her thoughts about all the decisions that the Raptors have coming up. Quickly before I get back into the Raps, though, I just want to say that yesterday, like, again, I went with friends, you know, kind of a quiet night. Watch my bet that I gave everybody yesterday come through in spades even though Donovan Mitchell got ejected still a sweatless evening for all those who ride but I'm seeing highlights on my phone when I'm glancing at it because I'm addicted to it just like the rest of you of the Pro Bowl right and this is a weird thing I you're like why are you even talking about this but that's kind of the point that I'm trying to tie in with NHL All-Star Weekend I'm watching the Pro Bowl, and it's Geno Smith. He's, I think, dead last at the accuracy contest, which didn't bode well for me. Didn't make me feel great about the Seahawks potentially handing him a huge contract, given that the other quarterbacks there, it's like Derek Carr, whose team benched him for the final few games of the season because they were so bad, and it was so clear that they were going to move on. And Derek Carr takes a shot at the Raiders. I love that, and that's the highlight of that. Then there's Tyler Huntley. Boy, did he put on a show at the quarterback skills competition. Everyone was waiting to see with bated breath the quarterback who threw a whole two touchdowns during the regular season for the Baltimore Ravens step up and showcase the skills that got him those two touchdown scores. And then there's Geno Smith. I don't want to talk bad about Gino, right? Give me a decent season. But there's meanwhile, Aaron Rodgers is in a celebrity pro am golf tournament. Every quarterback in the NFL has decided, yeah, we don't need to be there. And why on God's green earth would you ever spend a minute watching the Pro Bowl skills competition? You would have to be a lunatic or do it for your profession as I did. And all it made me think about was the NHL All-Star game. And and I'm just coming back to this point. I'm not going to, you know, beat it to death. But the NFL can afford that because the rest of the product is still spectacular. 
and it has a growing audience. People just have an insatiable desire for the NFL. They love it. The NFL's place in sports right now is unquestioned, unrivaled. It's actually sort of silly the way that some of the conversations that we had about this game five, six, seven years ago, actually more than that, 10 years ago, I would actually say is when we really started to get into the the dark history of the league with the concussions, the Will Smith movie came out, tell the truth, right? The, the game's place is unrivaled, unmatched. And while we might be frustrated at times with the officials, that's an all-league problem, while we still worry about the health of the athletes, while we still worry about the way that the game is officiated, while we still get mad about, uh, and by officiated, I mean some of the rules. Yeah, nothing's perfect, but the product is so great that they can just toss away All-Star Weekend for them and just say, you know what, this doesn't work. But why doesn't it work? Um, because you can't have a physical football game. You, you can't have a physical exhibition football game. And so when guys are doing that, people tune out. They need to still see the hits because this sport is a blend of the physicality and the skill. You love to see a dazzling wide receiver make an incredible play, but you also still love to see that big hit. And Myrtle and I spoke a bunch yesterday about all the things that are not going well for the NHL right now. And there's a variety of different reasons, and there's been basically this debate online ever since that television number tweet came out. And some people have downplayed it, saying that it's just purely about blackouts and you shouldn't read anything else into this and blah, 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 blah. But that's not the way that I feel about it, and it's not the way that a lot of you feel about it. And a big part of this is that there doesn't... like It feels like we're losing a bit of that blend, that it is becoming a little bit more like shinny. A lot of people keep saying that. Hey, no, there's there's an intensity to it. And yes, do I blame the 82-game schedule and the hard cap and all these other issues? Of course, of course, of course. But here we come into All-Star Weekend for the NHL, and I'm looking at the schedule for, hey, who's speaking and who's doing media day because that's what you do when you're in media. You just look at um, who's there and what's going on. There's... They're doing a pretty decent job, all right? There's some good availabilities. They're trying to do some creative stuff. They're kind of trying their best with some of the formats. It's a nice weekend getaway, trying to make it as attractive to the players as possible. But you look at the list of NHL All-Stars, and it's not great. Um, there's some that, yeah, you want to see, but the whole thing about having... Like, is, is it, I'm really not trying to be disrespectful to these players, but are you really looking forward to seeing, like, Brock Nelson and Kevin Fiala and Chandler Stevenson? Um, it, it, it's obviously a little thinned out. Some injuries have done this. Like, the Oilers have Stuart Skinner there representing them. Like, okay. That's fun. I still believe that the NHL All-Star Game should have a level of import for helping grow this game. I still think that they've, they've got to figure out a way to get players more engaged in it as a showcase where people get to watch a lot of these stars, where you're selling a lot of these stars, where guys show up. Because it, it isn't a national league like football where we know it doesn't matter how many people they replace it with, 
we know who those players are. Like, that's the thing about Tyler Huntley being there. I know he just played in a playoff game, but everybody knows like, everything about Tyler Huntley. You've watched him in all these different spots and all these different places. Great. All these games. In the NHL All-Star game, that's not the case. You're usually watching most of these players when they come and play your team. It's a very local sport now. It's why I kind of was pushing back to the blackout idea is that, well, all right, I get that seeing national games is harder, but what is the interest in the national side of the sport? And to me, they really do need to do a better job of marketing stars and figuring out ways to get those guys to resonate better across the league. That's why yesterday we did the thing about, like, who's the second most important player in the NHL? There wasn't a unanimous answer. I got answers. The variety. Some people just ended up putting their favorite players. Some people were trying to make a case for whatever. But still, to me, the biggest stars in the game are guys that are aging out. They're name-brand guys like Ovechkin, who has a reason because he's chasing the goal total. Sidney Crosby, obviously still there. But after that, it's you have to kind of make the case for the next person. And every answer that you get, you you kind of squint and go, is it really? Is it really? Anyway, I, I, I don't know how they do it. A lot of these things are how do you put the genie back in the bottle. I understand it from the players' perspectives where they're playing these this grueling schedule, 82 games, 82. Oof. And then you got to be asked during your one downtime in the season to kind of be on and be reinvigorated at this game and to care and try to sell it. But when they are selling this all-star game, I think that it has to be something where it shows off more than just the skills that these guys have. Because if they do, like, uh, it, it's hard to differentiate the players from one another. This has to be a weekend where personalities really come out, where it isn't just, hey, we're all, like... The cool thing about the old All-Star games with guys being friendly with each other is that they weren't all the rest of the year. Now it's just kind of the exact same thing. I don't know how they do it, but I hope that the players in the league and everybody at some point comes together with this and says, hey, we, we want to showcase what the game is actually supposed to look like a little bit. It doesn't need to be a melee. It doesn't need to be... Um, extremely physical it doesn't need you don't need to treat it like a stanley cup playoff match but the what ray bork said on this show on this pod like earlier this week it's just kind of stuck with me about guys caring about it and, and you need to have these players care about the stewardship of the league and their own personal brands beyond just hey how you fit in with the team again don't know how they get there but who's looking forward to watching some of these events you can tell me that the kids are, but I think, again, kids are mostly interested in what adults are interested in. And if you as an adult are passionately interested in watching something, and if you know the names of a lot of these stars, the kid is likely to as well. If you don't, it's probably going to be passive viewing. Anyway, um, we've got two Raptors games before the NBA trade deadline, and it kind of just hit me this morning when I was waking up and drinking my coffee and sitting there going... Tonight against the Houston Rockets, is this the last time we're going to see a lot of these Raptors players? Are they going to play all these guys? With all these rumors swirling around, are you going to risk it? Siakam just got snubbed for the All-Star game. So he and Willie Nylander can, like, they share a kinship now of the two guys Toronto sports fans are going to be livid about not being at these events, even though they don't really want to watch one of them. But yeah, you're playing the Houston Rockets. You going to trot Fred Van Vliet out there, potentially let him get hurt? They've already put OG Ananobi on ice. It's very likely you've already seen OG Ananobi's last game for the Toronto Raptors. They're pretty shocking, actually, 
if that wasn't the case at this point. Gary Trent Jr., maybe this is his last game. Fred, maybe his last game. The crazy thing is the rumors starting to pick up against Sia- about Siakam. I still have a hard time believing that he gets moved. And if you're the Raptors, I, I don't even think that that necessarily happens during the offseason, even though if you check out Blake Murphy's column about uh, fake trades that he's about to put up, I, I did make a fake Siakam trade. But it was a blowaway trade where it was like, hey, if you're doing a hard reset, this is what it's going to look like. Anyway, it's it's just an interesting time for the Raptors because we have not seen this during Masai Ujiri's tenure. When he first came in, there was a lot of discussion about tanking and Andrew Wiggins and, you know, they ended up getting saved by the New York Knicks on a non-trade with Kyle Lowry. That's like one of the great Raptors what-ifs. What if the Knicks decide to give up the first-round picks for Kyle Lowry instead of balking. What happens if they didn't ha- hadn't already made the Andrea Bargnani trade? Another massive wormhole because that pick ended up becoming Pirtle, and you know how that worked out. But are the Raptors really going to transition into a teardown? Because the reports that are out there are really starting to pick up and really starting to indicate that that is the direction that this team is going in. If you remove OG and OB, you take offers on Fred VanVleet, you potentially move him during the offseason. You're going to trade Gary Trent. This team's already bare bones thin. They can barely get by with those guys. They remove them, take steps back. You're looking at one of the worst teams in the NBA. One of the worst five, six teams in the NBA on any given night, and that's with Siakam and with Barnes. And no one's really used to seeing that. There's a whole generation of Raptors fans who basically don't know what a non-playoff team looks like. And so, Yeah. Watch these last two games, but it's starting to dream on the trades now and waiting for those reports. Anyways, I got a chance to catch up with Sirit Zoe. We talked about all these different things, including her excellent piece on Scotty Barnes, which is a deep dive into, yeah, his past, what he is doing right now, and just, yeah, a a deep look at the man himself and and what the Raptors might have over the next couple of years. Uh, Here's that interview now. Always fun when I get to be joined by uh, the great Sir Zoe. How's it going? How are we doing? I'm, I'm wonderful. How are you? I am terrific. Okay, so you wrote a piece on Scotty Barnes. I, I meant to have you on anyways, but I read this deep dive. It's excellent. It actually it, it really wasn't what I was expecting. Um, you basically talked to people from his childhood, his high school life, uh, his former teammates, his current teammates, just about – like a ton of people that are in contact with him. And, and so with stuff like this, I'm always kind of curious, you know, what is, what's the thing that you learned about Scotty Barnes that maybe surprised you or maybe shaped the way you view him differently now? Uh, probably how serious he can be. That was, that was the thing that stood out to me the most. And I think it kind of gives us some insight into how he was doing earlier this season. Uh, there is a, there's a part of the piece that's about this game that he had against RJ Barrett. And when he was a sophomore in high school, I believe, uh, and he was his team was you know in the national championships. They were playing Montverde. RJ was a senior at the time, and you know as we all remember, he was the best high school player in the country. Like he was, you know, you, you can really like stop talking about him, right? And uh, RJ, RJ really dominated him in that game. Uh, Scotty had a really good fourth quarter, and that's another thing that was a Scotty theme is these really good fourth quarters. <laughs> I'm sure Raptors fans have noticed that too, right? Like where he, he 
then turns it on. And this piece didn't make the quote, but that's something that Nick Nurse noticed too. Is like when it's winning time, his focus just hits a hits a different level. But he's really, really intense about winning, and winning really, really gets him down. So I think that kind of informs a little bit of how he was, you know, the body language and stuff earlier this season, just his frustration showing. Like we looked at Scotty as somebody who was very happy all the time in his rookie year, and I think. What I learned from doing this piece is that, yes, while he is of more optimistic demeanor than most people, I think the more accurate thing would be to say that he's just very expressive all the time. So whatever he is feeling, it is going to show in his face. It is going to just like, like the exuberance is going to be coming out of his body. So sometimes when it's he's losing, that can also be a lot of frustration as well. Yeah, Raptors fans have seen that a lot this year. Like... He has had a completely different demeanor for a lot of these games. Like, still the the fun, happy Scotty Barnes comes out, but it's nothing like last year. Last year it was just this complete, look at this bubbly, infectious guy. You'll Mm -hmm. remember, like, even when he won the Rookie of the Year award, everything was just, uh, I think, unexpected for the Raptors, unexpected for him. And yet, you know, here... It's just still nonstop commercials of Scotty Barnes, especially like with Subway, where he's just kind of yeah. he's he's screwing around, and that's the guy that we're used to. And this year, it's been yeah, very very different. Like a lot more getting into it with officials, uh, mm-hmm. getting into it more with other players. Like he got into it in a game against the Knicks. He got into it uh, in a game against the Suns with DeAndre Ayton the other night. He looks way more pissed off all the time, and and I like that mm-hmm. he wants to win. But reading your piece, that that was a big takeaway for me too, and it made me think about this. Is like, what do you think the best kind of atmosphere is for like an incubation for Scotty Barnes's development as a player? Because I, I did start to wonder in this like discussion about Raptors teardown and rebuild and retool, if it is the best thing to have him in a in an environment where it's just losing potentially for a couple of seasons. Mm, that's a really good point. I don't know that losing for a couple of seasons in a row is something that anyone has an appetite for, although I don't know. I think it's just something that the franchise has never done. When it comes to a young player, I think that's a really interesting question. I think it's something that teams probably don't consider enough in their developmental process, but I also think it's essentially something that eventually every player does have to learn how to go through. Um, And maybe this is that season for him. I think we've really seen him pick it up in January. And it's not like they're playing much better right now, but he's he's been a lot better at least. Um, he's found this new role, so maybe he's kind of gotten over that hump. I I don't know how much as a franchise you can. I know this is transitioning to like trade discussions, right? So it's like I don't I don't know how much as a franchise you can actually include that in your decision making now i think you can look at it like maybe we don't want to turn into the charlotte hornets but if you need to retool for a bit i think you got to get a little bit used to losing and also i mean sometimes you can't control it it's not like the Raptors are planning to lose this season they've been losing anyway so while i think that it is important i think like you know the psyche the mental aspect of it is also like you got to consider the fact that you know after after uh, Scotty had that RJ game, he actually ended up transferring to Montverde uh, a couple years later. He hasn't lost six like then that's a powerhouse school, right? Like he hasn't lost six games in a row in his career up until this season. That's never happened to him. But that's something that you know I'm sure Cade Cunningham is going through it in Detroit, right? Like he was his teammate, 
And it's just it's just something everybody kind of has to go through. It's it's definitely it's definitely a big deal. I think like you know when we're evaluating players and like we're especially if they're having a sophomore slump, which was it seems like that was the case with this year. I think as fans, uh, from a developmental perspective, you have to take those things into account just when you're evaluating the guy and how he's doing. But I don't know if I'm letting it figure too much into into the moves that I'm making. Yeah, that's that's probably smart, and yeah, that's probably the way that they're looking at it too. I would just think like, you know, a lot of this piece. Um, I actually have the quote in front of me. Is like, yeah, uh, the with key with several key players up to hit the free agent market over the next two summers. Should Toronto blow it up, retool around Barnes? The answer might hinge on whether Barnes can only serve as the bridge to the future, but the face of the franchise's next era. I do think that that last part, that he he's shown flashes of that right in his young career. But I, ha- I will admit that there, there have been some just like worrying moments to the way that he's handled some of these losses. And just like the ups and downs of this year in terms of the way that I felt about, okay, like one night you'll look at him and go, oh, yeah, this guy is going to be a franchise player. It's basically mm-hmm. a lock to do it. And then there are other nights where you go like, mm, maybe I'm, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, you're right. The Raptors are entering this position where maybe they're not going to be good. And it seems like that is the way that they're going to go. And, and I do question how that is going to impact his development because the first thing I thought of was like, okay, you mentioned the thing about how, Hey, he's turned it around recently. That basically coincided with this one moment in the year where someone pulled up a stat about, Hey, Scotty Barnes doesn't drive. Like, he never gets to drive the ball to the hoop. And they asked Nick Nurse about it. And he had this awesome fourth quarter where it was just him driving to the basket, scoring, scoring, scoring. I think it was against the Bucks uh-huh. actually. And someone pointed out that, like, he's 126 in the NBA in, like, drive rate to the basket, which is obviously unacceptable for somebody with his skill set. Mm-hmm. And from that point forward, it was like they completely empowered him in a different way. And he's had a lot of effectiveness. And so you'd think like on the surface, that the greatest thing for Barnes is just more possessions, right? More, 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 and then he'll handle it. But again, reading your piece is like some of the things that he struggled with are like shot selection, um, dealing with losses, dealing with struggles, dealing with adversity. And so, well, I guess not adversity like in a personal life, but from a basketball standpoint. And all mm-hmm. that made me kind of think was, I do wonder if he is the guy right away, you know, like year three, if you're potentially facing, who knows, a Pascal trade in an off season, yeah, uh-huh. how he's going to handle all of that. Well, I think, so there's, there's two parts to this answer. I think, we'll, let's start with Pascal. I think if you look at Pascal's trajectory, it can kind of give you a little bit of insight into how slippery and, and long these, these developmental tracks are, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and right now the Raptors are at this juncture. We're all at this juncture. We can take positives and negatives out of all of this. Now, I'm more prone to look at a second season from a player like Scotty and see the improvements that he's made and look at it like, okay, he's been in adverse situations here. This is stuff that he's never had to deal with. And honestly, like on the learning curve for a learning curve of a 21 year old, he's doing pretty well. Uh, like just if you, if you compare what November looked like him or like what he looked like in November to what he looks like in January, I think that's a pretty significant improvement that honestly, like sometimes a sophomore slump like this lasts all season. Now I think that, you can certainly draw some conclusions away from this, right? Like, I don't think that Scotty Barnes is supposed to be, like, the guy who has the ball in his hands on every single possession is going to be your closing scorer and, like, your Jason Tatum type of guy, right? But I think he's different. I think he's more cerebral. I think he is a great playmaker. And that, that kind of gets to the other part of this. 
That improvement also coincided with two other things happening. Opponents stopped basically guarding him out at, at the perimeter, which is they've now they've now started guarding him out there again. But that, there was a little blip there. And they also the Raptors also started playing him at the four. And that I think has been a really like the, the biggest thing for me at least. Like I think it's brought him back closer to the rim. Right? Like this first this first few months of the season felt like this weird experiment where he was playing point guard but Fred was actually playing point guard. So all of a sudden Scotty's just kind of like waiting out in the perimeter to see what he's supposed to do. He's he's spotting up instead of cutting and like he's he's trying to add this these things to his game that he worked on in the offseason. That's a part of development. It can be kind of a long and winding road, especially this is true for everybody, but especially if you're a player like Scotty, whose game could potentially go in any direction, right? Like he could he can do a whole bunch of things. That's what everybody loves about him. But the key for him is always going to be to key into the things that are actually always going to be productive for him. And I think that's that's a balance that he's done a better job of striking at the four position. And I also think it's like we had, a, we had a really good piece probably two years ago at the Ringer by Rob Mahoney about the future of NBA offenses and that playmaking four position and how basically if you have a guy at the four who can do a little bit of everything, it just opens up everything for your offense. Like that guy can be the connector that all of a sudden if you're, if you're you know, if let's say the Pascal Siakam of this team gets – you know, gets double teamed and trapped. And if you get the ball out to Scotty, who can play four on three, going downhill in that Draymond Green type of role, then all of a sudden, if you've got a shooter and a dunker, then then you're you're kind of you're going to be okay. Like there's a whole bunch of other decisions that you can make beyond the superstar. And that is kind of that is a key to offensive versatility in the playoffs. That's the key to, you know, beating these really intricate defensive schemes and these, these scouting reports that seemingly these days know every single thing about a player. So I, I think that a lot of it is about kind of getting back into the role that makes sense for him. And I think that they've done that in the last, in, in the last month or so. And from there, then as a team, I think you can start to build out and make some decisions. I think you can look at it like I get it. Scotty really wants to be a point guard and put in his bio last season, but I don't really necessarily think that that's the right position for him. So then you can kind of look at it like, all right, we basically have our four. We have basically two fours with Siakam and then kind of actually make some decisions on your roster based on that. I guess the difference with Siakam, though, is that because he was around good teams, it was a little bit more patient with him. And then when did it speed up, right? It was when Kawhi left, and all of a sudden he was basically projected to be, or I shouldn't say projected, but the question started to get asked of, hey, how much of Kawhi's production can this guy add? And he has the the beginning to a season where it looks like his three-point shot is better, the famous Boston game, the famous two weeks where uh, Toronto media said he might win MVP, which was <laughs> still great. I love that time. Uh, there's a lot of tweets out there about Siakam MVP. The thing with Barnes that I wonder about with this is like, you're able to find out some of the stuff that you mentioned about him playing the four, because he is around other guys, right? Like, you, you are able mm-hmm. to experiment with some of those things. With removing some of them and empowering him more at this point, I have, I guess, a little bit of fear about everything coming too soon for him. Like, he exceeded expectations so greatly in his rookie year that I think, like, a part of the way he's been portrayed this season as, like, a huge disappointment for some of it. And you're right. Like, a lot of that has rounded out over the last couple of months. 
but it, it has been because the expectations got so high. And if now, like, you're putting that on him when he's, like, how old is he right now? He's 22? 20, 21. Yeah, he's 22. 21? My God. All right, yeah, all of a sudden he's a 22-year-old, and he's essentially the face of your franchise as a guy that's empowered to do a bunch of different things. I think it is harder to tell him, like, you can't be the point guard. You want, we want you to be the four. Um, yeah, I, I wonder about too much too soon for him in a weird way mm-hmm. with the way that this franchise seems to be pivoting. No, that's definitely a fair point, especially with what happened earlier in the season. I think this, this early this season, it was too much too soon. It, it almost felt like he didn't really know what he was supposed to be doing on the court sometimes. Like, he was so hesitant in certain moments, and that's another thing that I don't think we've ever really seen from Scotty. So, that's, that, that is definitely something to keep in mind. I guess I guess it goes to what kind of, if the Raptors do make a deal at the deadline, what kind of deals they make. Like, do you, do you see them going for a complete teardown and you know, deciding to just start from scratch again, and it's like Scotty getting like you know, eighty touches per game. I think it's on the table because, let, if you, we put it this way, it seems like OG is out the door, right? Like, did you see the Haynes report today? Mm-hmm. Oh, today? Yeah. So no, I did not see today's well, report. Yeah, Haynes basically said this quote: um, "Memphis and New Orleans are trying to prevent each other from getting OG." which means that there's probably a bidding war between two franchises that have a bunch of picks, young players, and, yeah, some contracts that probably work in an OG and an OB trade. And maybe somebody else gets in on that, on the price. But, yeah, like, I think if you're Toronto, and I've made this point, like, for, I don't know, the last couple of weeks, I'm, I'm a big believer in sell high. And if, the, if there's yeah. enough smoke around OG wanting out, and if you're getting a package that rivals what – you have to give up for a Donovan Mitchell. I think you have to do that for OG, mm-hmm. especially considering like his inability to stay healthy at times. Like there's just a lot of stuff with OG, the way that this team is like your ability to reset. Great. But you probably have to move off of Gary Trent too, because of the pending contract. So like, what are you getting back there? I don't know how they feel about Fred Van Vliet, but if he's hiring clutch, the bet on yourself guy, that seems like he wants a huge deal as well. Um, there's just enough There's enough question marks at this point where if those three guys are gone, which it seems like possible they are, I, I have a hard time seeing how Siakam during the offseason comes back and goes like, wait, so it's going to be Scotty Barnes, myself, Precious, and a bunch of draft picks? Like, like what are we doing here? It, it does get to the point where you start to wonder about the hard reset. And so, yeah, um, to me, that's probably the direction that they have to go. I just don't know what the Siakam part of it is moving forward because you'd love to keep him. Um, but if you're Siakam, is, is that really what you want to be? Uh, a guy who is putting up great stats and maybe getting some all-NBAs and maybe the face of the Raptors, but everyone's still kind of waiting for your understudy in Barnes to take over the reins from you. Yeah, I think I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. Um, there's probably been – I hate saying this because OG is, like, one of my favorite players on the Raptors, but – Everybody uh, loves OG. Ever, That's what makes this so hard. OG. I know. It really does. <laughs> it's like, this feels a little gut-wrenching. Um, there's never been a better time to trade him. Uh, I think I think any time you trade him after this, the chances of his value going down are pretty high. Uh, first of all, there's just the fact that anybody who gets him right now, they would have him for this year and the next year, and that he has a player option the year after that. Yep. And, you know, he had this just incredible – where he looks like defensive player of the year. 
shooter. I know. I think as, as people who watch the Raptors closely, I think we know that's a little bit more inconsistent <laughs> um, than what the numbers uh, bear themselves out to be. But he's basically like your ideal three and D guy. If you're a contender, he can plug and play pretty much with any of those guys. Like you mentioned, Memphis, New Orleans. I think Phoenix is a team that should definitely get in on it. Seems like they are. Uh, I think Indiana is a team that should be thinking about it too, especially if they're going to go from. I don't know if they really are going to last in this retooling thing for that much longer uh, as well, just because I mean, Ty Halliburton is such a floor raiser that it's hard to lose games on the floor, so you might as well just start kind of building out. Um, so there's there's a bunch of teams in the Knicks, obviously, that I think are interested right now, but I think, you know, this is also a strangely superstar bereft deadline slash maybe market this time around. And I think if you get to the offseason and you still have OG Ananobi on the roster, all of a sudden, like, you know, let's say the Atlanta Hawks have just, you know, either, you know, lost in the playing game or just, like, you know, torpedoed out of the playoffs and Trey Young suddenly becomes available, then all of those picks are no longer really available for OG Ananobi. I think that's something that needs to be considered as well. Like, this. In this trade deadline market, OG Ananobi is probably, like, the best player that you can get. Outside of maybe DeAndre Ayton, I think that depends on how you feel about both of those guys, right? Like, I feel I don't, very I don't really poorly know. about Ayton. I am, I am the least Ayton guy who exists. I actually said on the, the other day that if I had to watch 82 games of Ayton a year, I think I'd just stop watching basketball. Like, watching a seven-footer fade away from the basket at that rate and, like, never initiate content uh, contact, it just, it's too much for me. Like, I can't. Um, I saw a report, actually, that the Raptors were close on him, and I was like, please don't be revisiting these conversations. I saw Masai walking, mm-hmm. you know, with Jay Jones, and I'm just <laughs> yeah. sitting there like, please, like, someone separate oh, these no. guys. Bobby Webster, get in between them like they're about to have a hockey fight. Like, I just, I, I cannot have this. I can't have Aiton in my life. I think you're right. I think OG is the, the prize piece. Plus, you know, these picks that would be coming in, I think you trying to accumulate these lottery tickets in this year's draft is a massive part of it. Um, making sure you're as bad as you can be down the stretch is a big part of it. Once these pieces are set, like teams are probably going to be less inclined to move them because they're going to start dreaming on the guys that they want, they want to pick. Um, and I think we're also coming off of a year where in the championship, everybody saw what Andrew Wiggins' value was to the Golden State Warriors and that OG could possibly be like a better version for a team in a year where there's like mm-hmm. no really dominant team. Um, he fits in on everything. So, yeah, this is the time. Like, they kind of have to do it. I guess, like, if we're going to loop in the, the New Orleans part of this, would you, like, if they offer this year's Lakers pick, like, don't you just almost automatically have to do that? I think I want a little bit more. Oh, you want more. You get more. I but do. I'm saying, like, if yeah. you're even New Orleans, do you put that on the table or do you just try, like, using every other piece at your disposal? Because, like, if you trade for OG Ananobi and that pick becomes women Yama or Scoot, like, I-, I think that's the only way to get yourself into kind of trouble if you're New Orleans. I think, so, the chances of that pick becoming women Yama or Scoot are so low at this point. Um, I think the chances of the Raptors pick becoming women Yama or Scoot are much, are much higher. And this is actually an element that complicates the whole, you know, like for me, the ideal version of this Raptors deadline and, and the rest of the season is that they don't get too much work, but they find a way to be bad enough that they stay within this range. Like right now, like right now, if you look at Tankathon, 
they'd get the they'd get the sixth pick in the draft, and like they they have a nine percent chance right now of getting the number one pick, and I think about like a thirty eight percent chance of being in the top four. And the only team that I think they can leapfrog is probably the Orlando Magic. I think they're only two games back of them in the loss column. Charlotte's a little bit farther away, but I, th- I think if you really – it depends what they do in this deadline, right? If they really reset, they can get into that range. Um, but they're already in good position right now. And the thing with the Lakers and the thing with a lot of the teams behind the Raptors right now is they're not really in a position to, to tank. Like the Lakers aren't going to – the Lakers aren't going to get worse than the Raptors this season, you know? Like, they have LeBron, they have AD, they just made a trade for Hachimura, they're going to try to make the playoffs this year. They're playing a lot better. It's not like the early season now. I think they probably will be in play-in range by the time uh, the the playoffs come around. So I don't think that that pick, that pick was still going to be really valuable, but it'll probably be a high lottery pick. I don't think it's going to be a low lottery pick. So I think that probably encourages New Orleans to get, get off of it more. And we'll go back to that, but just for a second, like, so Indiana is behind the Raptors right now or ahead of them in the standings right now. I don't think – I don't really know what they're going to do, but I don't think that they're going to tank. Chicago doesn't have their pick this year. They're not going to tank. Atlanta's not going to tank. Um, OKC, I don't know. OKC could do whatever. I've ne- like, no one really knows what, what they're going to do. Washington is not going to tank. Portland, unless Dane gets hurt, like they've never, they've never d- done anything like this. So they're probably not going to do it either. And then, so basically, like, you really have Oklahoma and then Utah. Oh, Utah just keeps winning these games. Like, they're a team to pay attention to on the deadline, too, to see if they try to get a little bit worse. But Oklahoma and Utah are the only two teams that I see trying to get to a position where they could be worse than the Raptors this season, right? So I think that's, yeah. that's something to pay attention to as well. Uh, but it does it does kind of make the idea of standing pat a little bit easier for them. Like, I think the biggest thing the Raptors have to worry about is if they don't make a deal and all of a sudden they start playing better, Um for the long-term picture, I, I know it's still a little not compelling, and I think you're the same way. I think you're all about like the, the, the just trying to build the the right team in the in, in in the long term. Like I don't I don't care if they win five more games this season. I get that it makes makes people happier in the short term, but like that's not that's not what matters here. It's not what matters to the Raptors. It's not what matters to the side either. Uh, so yeah, I think I think the Pelicans, especially with the way that they're playing right now, um, you know they they held you know they were above water for a bit without Zion. Um, they've but lost they're not playing yeah like they're, they're, they're not thinking yeah. they've been not good uh for, for a while now so i think they're pre-incentivized to to make a deal i think they have a really interesting medley of young players and contracts i think memphis does too i'd be curious who you out of, out of all the sort of potential deals that memphis and new orleans could put together what is the one that is more enticing for you I think if you're the Raptors, your ideal scenario, your like dream of all dreams is that New Orleans looks at themselves as we don't know how many years we're going to have healthy Zion. The league is flat. We want to prove that we're this team that is trying to win. We just moved in on CJ McCollum. Like, why can't we beat anybody come this playoffs? Like, who is the team that we don't feel like we can match up on? But there is some urgency with the market and with their star player that they get desperate enough to give you their pick and the Lakers mm-hmm. pick. Um, because, yeah, I think that 
like, look, they haven't been playing very well lately. There's probably some added desperation, especially given like their market. And that Lakers pick, as much as I think it's going up, right? At the end of the year, my guess is the Lakers pass the Thunder. All of a sudden, Shea ends up with a weird injury. Although, I do wonder what his tolerance level is for that when he's having such an incredible season. And, you know, he wants to maximize his contracts moving forward. I just think Portland kind of sucks and that... Yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in them winning games. But ultimately, if you get that Lakers pick, you're a LeBron or, you know, one of 80s, 45 injuries away from maybe you are staying in that 13 spot in the West. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a guarantee that the Lakers move up the way that they're constructed. And I'm not overly sure that at this point they move the Westbrook contract with those future picks because it just seems so risky for what's out there. Like... I don't know what the package is that the Lakers feel like all of a sudden moves them into a title contender. I've put out the idea for a long time that um, they do the Trent-Fred Van Vliet trade. They get some shooting around them and take back the Westbrook mm-hmm. contract for those two future picks. But like, I don't know how that benefits either side where the Raptors are going, these are so far away, and then the Lakers are saying we're still not contenders with these two guys. But I think my ideal package, long-winded way, is, yeah, get the Memphis – or sorry, get the New Orleans picks – Try to get the Lakers pick, have another lottery ball in there, increase your percentages mm-hmm. of being in that top two, top four, and then try to get somebody like a Dyson Daniels. Um, or I would say long shot would be Herb Jones, but you probably don't get him back. Um, but yeah, that, that would be it. I think New Orleans, if I read on the ticker or I guess Twitter, I don't know why I said the ticker like I was back in 2005. <laughs> but if I read on Twitter that it was just a deal has been consummated between those two teams, I think that would be the thing that got me most excited. What about Memphis's 2024 pick from Golden State? I think that one's sneaky underrated. That's a good one. That is a good one. But I still, I still think Steph is going to be good. And I still think, like, given their propensity to spend around him, they're going to continue to try to find ways. Like, look at uh, what they did a couple years ago with trying to uh, – I, I can't believe – with D'Angelo Russell. When Clay got hurt, they were like, yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. We're going to use, like, assets. We're going to use the future. We're going to try to get this player – I just feel like Golden State has a better shot at being, like, not... They're going to just stay better than where the Lakers are right now. That's what I would guess. That's fair. And this, and, th- and also, like, the other point is that this is a draft. Like, this is a draft, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, if you, can have, if you can have multiple picks in this draft, like, you're, you're very well positioned. And also, when you start t- t- thinking about timelines, that's a problem that the Raptors are having right now. If you don't want too many picks in the future... Unless you're going to package them for something later. Like, that would be the benefit of doing a Westbrook deal right now is that those picks are very valuable for a future trade that you could make. It gives you a lot of flexibility. Uh, but for building the team right now, Scotty Barnes is only 21 years old, but you don't want to be in a position where a couple of years from now you have the same problem where Scotty Barnes is ready and all the guys behind him aren't. Exactly. You, you don't want to have too far in the future. Plus, yeah, I... I just like the idea, too, of them getting injected with a bunch of young talent and having that around Siakam and seeing how that goes and how that develops. And, yeah, um, I again, I just to me, so much of it is about those lottery tickets with those guys. And it does feel, though, like, and I guess maybe this is sort of the, the way to, you know, close or wrap up today is how much – what do you – what's your sense of, like, the pressure level on Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster? Because, like, clearly they're not getting fired. They're – they're they're there for as long as they want the job. So it's not like a job security pressure issue, but just like from a optic standpoint, like this OG thing has been built up pretty big. And like last night I'm watching the jazz play and Walker Kessler's getting seven blocks and just absolutely dominating the game. And I'm reminded that mm-hmm. the Raps traded what 
probably would have been a Walker Kessler pick so that they could bring in Thad Young, who's a good quote for your article, but I don't know if that ended up being worth it going from Walker Kessler to Christian Coloco. Um, they've missed on a bunch of picks. They haven't really built this roster very well. Um, there's been some trades that have been kind of like, all right, fine. Um, they turned Norm Powell into two years or a year and a half of Gary Trent. Like, it just, It's been a while outside of the Barnes move where they've had a hit, and now here's kind of this deadline where everyone's expecting a lot of really big things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I do. I wonder about like the pressure from guys who are respected and who have won and who have done a great job. But it, like, it, it does kind of feel like there's a pending, looming, whatever, slight narrative shift with these guys if they blow this deadline. It does feel like that's coming. I don't know that that matters to them, at least. Uh, I don't think that's ever really mattered to them. I think that's also, like, to the credit why they've been able to make some of the better moves that they've had. They're pretty insular about these things. When it, they, they have made a lot of sort of lateral moves in the last few years. And I think that, you know, my, my read on that is, like, for example, a Norman Powell, Gary Trent trade or the Sab Young trade is an attempt to kind of keep the payroll at a level that's acceptable for a team that's not going to win a championship or not going to be trying to contending for a championship while also competing at the same time. And when you make moves like that, I think like over time, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to build towards actually having positive assets. I think more likely than not, you're going to lose them or you're just going to kind of like in the Trent norm situation, you're going to kind of keep, coming to the same decisions over and over again. Like, for example, like one trade that they could make with the Suns is, you know, a, a Cam Johnson, you know, salary plus a bunch of the Suns picks trade, which, you know, could be valuable down the line considering w- what position the Suns are in right now. That to me, that, that strikes me as like a tempting deal that they could make. And it's a type that, they should stay away from. You know what I mean? Like, I really think they should be trying to go up or down. I mean, it really is down at this point or stand pat. Uh, and that, that, that to me is like the, the only real worry I have is like, if they just kind of keep trying to like do this, you know, just tread water and, and keep trying to do this thing of winning and developing at the same time. I think you just, you need to kind of have like lightning strike in a bottle in order to actually do that successfully. And I think just having a clear direction is, is the biggest thing. So that's, that is probably, I don't know what their Achilles heel is. Uh, but at the same time, I don't, that's not a bad one to have. And at the same time, I also just don't think, I don't think the pressure thing is really a thing for them. I think, you know, Messiah's life and overall is just much bigger than basketball. I think Bobby Webster has like, you know, he, he commands the respect of a lot of different organizations. Like if things were to go in a different direction in Toronto, I mean, I imagine Bobby's going to be here, but for, but if they were, I mean, you know, Bobby Webster is not a guy that is going to have a hard time finding a job or like even a top job. So it's, I don't know that the pressure stuff is really any, every, anything that's ever, you know, bothered, at least the guys at the top. I imagine maybe everybody else when they're trying to win and you know what the expectations are, maybe they're feeling some pressure, but I think I think those two are probably okay. Yeah, they're fine. You're right. Your answer is complete. It's just going to be morons like me who end up going, eh, well, you know, a lot of misses too now. <laughs> and that's Sure, yeah. And... Yeah, and I, and I think that's fair, right? Like, I think there's also been, been like this sort of narrative around Messiah as though he's not like a human being for, for a couple yeah. For a couple of years right now, that doesn't necessarily make sense either. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm just like everything that's been done, like from building this team out where it's like, did you have to give Ken Birch three years? Like, was that necessary? Um, and I know these seem like little things, but a lot of the Raptors misses like Malachi Flynn over Desmond Bain, where everyone kind of in that spot thought that he fell there moving back like for the yeah, the mm-hmm. way that they use the yeah, the, the Goran Dragic contracts to bring in Thad. There's, yeah, the draft picks, free agent signings. Like, even if the Toronto has had a checkered pass with these things, like Otto Porter Jr. being your big move in an offseason where you look like your team was trying to take a step. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's a – I don't think that a paralysis is fair because I think that these guys would make moves if they're right for the franchise and they think that they are right. But the need to kind of, like, dominate these trades in the past with Masai, I wonder if – like just the league has gotten smarter if it's harder to get those deals done i thought about it during like the the lowry year where we celebrated lowry being gone and then all of a sudden he was just like back in the lineup the next night because they couldn't get a deal done and had to wait till the off season like yeah whether it's a league thing whether it's a messiah and bobby thing but yeah they're historically not two dudes that love doing big decisions under pressure and so that's kind of where I want to see what ends up happening here. Because I, I really don't think that they can – you said it. Like, they've got to pick a direction. I really do believe that they've got to take at least a little bit of a step back here and maximize on some of these player assets and not just come back having stood pat and go, we, we couldn't get anything done. Oof, that would just be a tough look. And I, I guess that's the last one. Where are you at with Fred? Like, because from a Scotty Barnes timeline, it feels like he's the least can fit especially since, you know, he's on podcast talking about how he doesn't love his role (laughs) on this team. Um, And yet it doesn't really feel like his market is robust right now, and that's one that maybe you walk into the offseason like Lowry. Do do you think, like, it's good business or, yeah, it's it's good for the roster if he's a Raptor moving forward on a big contract? No, um, I I don't think... I don't think it makes too much sense. I love Fred, but, uh, you know, I I think if you look at, like, the the Raptors, the roster that you're trying to construct here going forward, having, you know, a guy who is essentially a very good shooting guard in a 5'8 body be your point guard for a team that has a bunch of rim runners and guys that should be rolling to the rim all the time just doesn't make a lot of sense from a roster construction uh, point of view. I mean, I think there's a reason that, like, the most balanced Fred has ever looked is playing next to Kyle Lowry. Um, and wh- why, like, we saw those two guard lineups. You know, he he is excellent at the thing that he does, and he's also very good at being able to do a little bit more than he is supposed to for stretches of time, which is what the Raptors have asked of him. Like, I don't think they've necessarily put him in very fair positions for his skill set either. Uh, but I just don't think that he necessarily fits into whatever the future of this team is going to be. I think you need more of a more of a playmaking table setting point guard uh going down the line in the future i like one of the things that we had we had an episode where we deeped up we did a deep dive on the raptors one of the things that we noticed was that they are in the bottom 10 percent in uh in points they get from rolls to the rim and i think that's the fred thing right like when he gets down into the rim i don't know if it's a size thing i don't know if actual sort of playmaking ability he's like i don't really see him making the pocket pass he'll kind of swing around like he'll keep his dribble and then he'll find someone like scotty or pascal um with a wraparound pass but he's just he's not great at navigating the paint um and making plays for other people uh, he's a great kickout guy but it's just, i think it's, it's a little it's a 
little thing, but I think these little things can kind of become big things. So ironically, I kind of feel like for two reasons they shouldn't they shouldn't trade Fred right now. His value is not very high, uh, and that kind of gets back to what you were saying about you know sometimes you keep guys when maybe they shouldn't. There was probably a time time to trade Fred, and and it has passed. Uh, maybe it'll come again, but I also I, I worry a little bit like. If they if they trade Fred, and it depends who they trade him for. I think if they trade Fred for, you know, someone who is not like a playmaking point guard, they definitely get worse. I think just like the sheer level of, of points that he produces for a team that just doesn't produce a lot of points, especially in the half court, um, you know, it gets them to lose a lot of games. So if they end up trading him for, you know, like a, a point guard that might be worse for him, but like worse than him, but like a, like that skill set that's a little bit more in this team, they might actually just like level out and win some games, which is. <laughs> that's pretty much the opposite of what I want to see happen at this point. No, they can't. They like they actually. If they were, that's probably one of the biggest reasons to trade Fred is that he's probably the guy that's going to impact wins and losses the most out of everybody else that they could be moving at this deadline. I just I think that what you said earlier is the biggest key here and why they won't move off of him is because they'll just look at it like how much mobility are we really going to have here? I I don't think that they can catch the Charlottes and the San Antonios right. Like those teams are just too bad. They're not. They're not going to fall that precipitously, and I think that there's enough that they can end up doing, especially given like Fred's injury history and his free agency looming on a bad team, and mm-hmm. the fact that he's at least played better. That sitting Fred down the stretch, I don't think it's going to be too hard to get him to buy into that. I, I think that's, that's a kind of a mutually beneficial thing that they can do. And then you go into the off season and you wait for teams like that have already been swimming around him like Orlando and Phoenix to come up with the best offer and let him go get paid somewhere and then take whatever, yeah, the best packages and say, yeah, thanks for the memories, but we're moving on. I just, I don't see the Clippers thing happening because the Clippers have no assets. So great. You can try all you want to try to convince the Raptors to take Terrence Mann and, you know, Robert Covington, but I just like Masai's too smart for that. He's, he's not doing that. Um, so that's the way I think that one ends up going, but yeah, either way, um, I'm fascinated by it. Cause it's been so long since we've seen the Raptors. Yeah. Move into a period where like, we just didn't really know what they were going to look like and what it was going to be like. And yeah, I think that's really fascinating for this fan base. I think it's fascinating for you, Jiri. Um, yeah, the, the Raptors, positivity Twitter gang. It's going to be tough <laughs> watching the tank for the next couple of months, but uh, your piece was great on Scotty Barnes. I think everybody should go read it. Again, it's up on the ringer right now. Um, the title is scrolling back up because I have it in front of me. Is Scotty Barnes ready to spread his uh, big wings? Seared Zoe, um, great work as always. Thanks for spending so much time with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Always fun. Sportsnet 590, the fan. All right, it's time for action. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings app to get in on the action. Must be 19+. plus. Ontario residents only. Please play responsibly. So I'm starting to look at the Super Bowl. It's official. We've hit the Friday. The, the Pro Bowl skills competition that we all love so much is over. It's time to look at some stuff for the following weekend. And now it's like in range. Now the the Super Bowl is real. Um, I'll be doing a lot of picks throughout next week. I'll bring the fellas in on a lot of these bets. We'll do all kinds of props. We'll cover everything. But, you know, I take a scan through early, right? Because I want to make sure that I find good value early. I mentioned yesterday before giving you that winner on... The, Cla- the Cavs-Grizzlies game, which, by the way, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome for that winner. 
Say thank you, JD. And yeah, follow on Twitter and Instagram if you want more picks because, uh, yeah, I am, I am prone to post those. Um, I love a Super Bowl MVP bet, and it's always the quarterback, right? And everybody always takes the quarterback, 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 quarterback. But this particular year, I love the defensive lineman to win Super Bowl MVP at plus 2,500. I, just from a value standpoint, if you look at it, I think they're fifth in the value chart, maybe even sixth. And I don't really get that because both these teams are loaded at that position. That is what Philadelphia has been known for this year. Like Jalen Hurts was an MVP candidate, but let's remember back last week what happened. He looked shook. He looked rattled. He did not look great. I could absolutely see this being a defensive battle. And if you slow down Patrick Mahomes and you win this game – they're probably going to end up looking at a defensive player. And so think about the Eagles guys on the defensive line. Hassan Reddick, 16 sacks this year. Hargrave, Sweat, Graham, 11 sacks apiece. And then, of course, the perennially great Fletcher Cox, who had seven. And then on the other side of the ball, Chris Jones wrecked the game. If we did MVP from last week, who would it have been? It would have been Chris Jones, right? What, like, he can't have two great games in a row? He had 16 sacks this year. So you take those six guys and tell me that they're plus 2,500. That's Those are six of the best players in this football game. I think that it's a little bit undervalued. Yes, they probably split it up. Yes, they probably steal votes from one another, but I could absolutely see a sack and a strip ending up being the game, the, the game pivotal play. I could see this game being lower scoring and at plus 2,500, I just think it's a decent bet. So that's my pick early for the Super Bowl. That was Time for Action, brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings app to get in on the action. Must be 19+, plus, Ontario only. Please play responsibly. Ian Tulloch, next. Hey, it's back. So, I think we're 52 games in. I think there's only 30 games left in the Leafs season. I think that's about right. Not like I'm counting because... I have to do a post-game show for every Leafs game on Leafs Talk, which, again, subscribe and review. Sammy and I will be back, I think, a week from now. Well, he's back. I'm taking that Friday game off because it's Columbus on a Friday, and you were never, ever going to get me on a game like that. But nobody does the 42 game. This is a nice time. This is a settle-in time. This is an evaluation time. It's weird. I I mentioned it uh, when Austin Matthews got hurt that I do think that his injury makes the evaluation of the team more difficult. You just don't really know what you have. Even we're watching that Boston game and there's takeaways from it. Um, one of which absolutely hurt the soul of uh, my next guest because yeah, the, uh, the pairing that he adores so much got absolutely barbecued in that game. But this is kind of a little bit of a time to take stock and I'm going to have Ian Tullock on now, hockey analyst, to a numbers guru, guy who I vehemently disagree with just about everything to see how he uh, evaluates some of these numbers at the 52-game mark, where the Leafs stand right now from, yeah, a couple of analytical standpoints and what actually matters, what's noise, um, what we shouldn't put too much stock into. Ian Tullock, what's up, buddy? How we doing? Happy to join you. Always love disagreeing with you. It's a good time. How you doing, JD? Yeah, I'm I'm doing well, brother. Uh, okay, so yeah, you know the bit. I've got a bunch of stats. Uh, I know that you brought some that I I hope mean something to you because yeah, I I do think uh, I usually at least 
look at something a little bit differently when you'll present something to me. But yeah, I've got I've got a few things at the break right now that I want to discuss and I, I want to think about. Hey, is this something to be you know concerned about? Is this an actual issue? How do you actually kind of fix these things or change these things? And and sort of what's the priority level as we head into? I think we're a month from the deadline now, right? Because I think it's March third. Today is yeah, the that sounds about right to me. Yeah, we're we're close. It's a month of deadline time. So yeah, obviously the the Matthews injury is going to change a lot of these numbers, and him having a bit of a down season from a scoring standpoint and being hurt has affected this first one. But the Leafs last season goals four per sixty, third, three goals a game, three point one goals a game. This season they're tenth at two point seven. Um, what are you reading into that number? So what's fascinating about goals is that over the last decade or 15 years, the nerds like me never loved looking at goals. We always loved looking at shots or scoring chances or the expected goals, you know, that Carlo Koliakovo in the world. We hate all those math equations, but that's what's killing hockey and that's what's killing the numbers right now. But if you look at over the last three years, Goals are actually the most predictive stat in terms of if you look at the last 20 games and what's going to predict the next however many games, goals are actually a weirdly good predictive number and especially goals against. So that's something fascinating that I'm trying to trying to update my priors because as a nerd, I've always looked at the shots. I've always looked at the scoring chances. I've always looked at the quote-unquote underlying numbers. I never loved looking at goals because they were noisy. They were a small sample stat in a very random sport. But now I have to try to look at goals as a stat that matters a lot more now because in the modern game, shot quality is something that we're having a lot of difficulty measuring in the public sphere. East-West passes into the slot, odd man rushes, time and space. That's something even a private model can't take into account. So... I guess one thing I'm looking at here with the Leafs, especially if you look at goals against, is that the same percentage has been dipping lately. Is that the fact that their defense is slipping? Is that the fact that their save percentage to begin with was completely unsustainable and Samsonov and Matt Murray were never going to be 930 goalies the rest of the way? I think there's a lot there, but the point that you brought up was goals for. And realistically, I think when you look at this team, they're missing a forward. They're missing some type of scoring depth, whether you want to put that player in the top six, whether it's a Timo Meyer or a Connor Garland or some type of legitimate top six forward or a player on the third line who provides some legitimate scoring punch. So if I'm looking at this Leafs team, weirdly over the last couple of years, they've been much better defensively than I think a lot of us want to admit. Ever since TJ Brody joined this team, they've been a top five to top 10 defensive team pretty consistently. But the goals for haven't been there, especially in the playoffs. They dry up a lot, particularly the power play. So this Leafs team, if I'm looking at the deadline, I want to bring in a player who can help me score more goals. I want to bring in a player who can legitimately help me offensively and not defensively. Where when I'm looking at the the players that are brought up in the media right now, I hear a lot of Jake McCabe, and I'm not seeing as many forwards listed. So I'm sure that's where you probably want to go with this conversation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the matter. Well, there's a couple things. One is I, I believe that the Matthews downturn obviously affects this number. Nobody thought he was going to be out of the lineup for over a month. Um, 
I don't know if we were ever going to expect him to score at the rate he did last year. A lot of people actually did have the conversation of, hey, is this going to end up being his career year? I think it's pretty possible that it does. Like, that's a lot of goals that he scored last season. I I didn't think the drop-off would be this much. But even still, I, I kind of look at the top six and say, well... Bunting's replicating the year that he had a year ago. Nylander's been better. Marner has been more willing to shoot. Um, and I think that his actual shots per game has been down, but his shot looks better. He looks more threatening to score. Tavares has pretty much stayed the exact same guy. So when I look at like all of those like premier guys in the top six, I think to myself, well, okay, this should have a little bit of a leveling out. I'm not going to take the Matthews thing into account as much. I think it is the depth scoring. I think that that is a, a major issue with this team. And, like, even if you look at so expected goals for per 60, they were third last year, and they've dropped to 10th this season. And, and so I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking that that is a bit of a troubling sign. The, the more curious one to me is basically, and I think this has been under-discussed when it comes to them scoring goals, has been the power play. And, and I don't know how much to read into that because – They've tried different things. They've experimented with the group differently. They've tried the five forwards, which you and I were a fan of checking out, but it seems pretty clear that they're not going to continue to do that. Um, I think that this goals for problem, and I am going to say it's a problem because you're right. If we're trying to predict success for this team, they've got to score, and it hasn't been playoff exits because, yeah, they haven't been able to keep the puck out of their net as much as people like to you know, reflect back on some of those Freddie Anderson series against the Bruins. It's been getting those timely goals. It's been getting those big goals, and it's been the ones that have been down the lineup. So I'm not reading – I think that two things can be true, and this is what I talked to Myrtle about yesterday in terms of deadline needs. I like this team to add a defenseman like a McCabe type or like a Gavrikov type to kind of insulate them from what we saw in that Bruins game with Sandine and Lilligren, where the two of them just like – it was very obvious that you, you can't have them in a playoff series together. Like that's just not going to happen. And I think Dubas knows it. I think that everybody in that organization knows it. But they need some punch. I think the question really does become though, does it make more sense from a resource allocation standpoint to go big for a guy like Meyer or do you try to sprinkle some of that talent down your lineup and think that one, maybe two forwards with that group helps you more? So personally, now that Bo Horvat's off the open market, I think after Timo Meyer, there's a pretty big drop off in terms of quality. There is oh, a t- guy like Co- yeah, so there is a guy like Connor Garland available. Or I don't know what the, the noise is on Brock Besser. I know he was available earlier in the season. I don't know if he's still going to be going for some type of uh, get him for pennies on the dollar type of deal. But uh-huh. Timo Meyer right now, in terms of his ability to create his own offense, both off the cycle, off the rush, he's exactly that type of quote-unquote heavy forward who is a legitimate 30-goal scorer that can really help you in a playoff series. So... Personally, if I'm the Leafs right now, I'd be going all in on him. I know Matthew Nyes is a prospect mm. that a lot of Leafs covet right now, but he's not likely to step into a top six role right now and contribute. He might not ever be that guy. And I know if you look at a prospect model, Chase McCallum had a great article on it, that if you look at his recent comps, both this year, the year before, the year before that, he's not likely to become a top six forward, even though I like his game, even though I love watching him and I love the way that he goes to the net. And for a guy, his size, he has a pretty good amount of skill. The thing with prospects is that they're never as likely to hit as you think they're going to be. Everyone wants prospects to hit. It's this something you can dream of. I think the shine, new shiny toy syndrome, it's all, we always get a bit more excited about it than we probably should. If I'm the Leafs, I go all in. I offer knives. I offer a first, I offer, 
I don't know if there's a, a player on the current roster that they would want right now, but I just think if you add Timo Meyer to this roster, whether he's playing on the top line or if he's playing on that second line with John Tavares, I think it gives you so much more offensive punch. And in the playoffs, realistically, it's your top six that are going to get you there. I know that we talked about depth scoring, and it would be really nice for the Leafs to have a bit more scoring punch on their third or fourth line. But the first and second line, when the games get close in game six and game seven, they're going to be playing a lot of the minutes. And right now, would you rather have Kelly Yarncroft playing big minutes or someone like Timo Meyer on there who could really make a difference in this series against Tampa? Personally, I'd put all my chips in and try to get Meyer. At the end of this season, he's an RFA. I know the $10 million qualifying offer scares some teams right now, but if you're the Leafs and you can't afford to re-sign him, you could flip him again because as an RFA, you hold his rights. And if we look at what Alex Debrinkat went for in the offseason, I think that's a pretty good comp in terms of what you could get in a return at a trade at the draft or, or shortly after free agency starts when teams have a lot more money available. So it doesn't even need to be a rental. You could recoup some assets afterwards. And I just think Timo Meyer fits this team's needs so perfectly that it makes a lot of sense to put all your chips in. Well, if if we're talking about a Timo Meyer trade, I think people are deluding themselves if they don't think Matthew Nice has to be involved. Like he does. Because if you're talking about, hey, you flip Timo Meyer before, um, yeah, before you have to qualify him or whatever. The Brinkett last year went for the seventh pick in the draft and a second and a third. And the third was a future third, but it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty heavy haul, right? And so the fact that he would kind of carry that value up until that point, I think that's a pretty strong indicator that it's going to cost a lot to get Timo Meyer. Maybe, I, I think a lot of us read into the Bo Horvat trade and went, okay, and I did it too. In the moment I went, hey, the Bo Horvat trade, this is what the price is going to be, okay? So you're asking for a first-round pick, um, a B-level prospect, and then, you know, kind of a middle six guy. I actually think for the reason that you just outlined that Timo Meyer is going to end up being more expensive than Bo Horvat, and people are going to be confused at first, but that RFA part of it that you just brought up, that's that's going to be the reason why. Um, I like I like Meyer too. I, I, I got to admit that normally I'm not a big clutch at the prospects guy, but this one just does feel different to me from the standpoint of the Leafs just have nothing coming in behind their other players. And and I get the going all in. Um, maybe I'm being a little bit more afraid because of the Tampa series and the Boston series. Um, I, I, I normally am someone that preaches a little bit more aggression. I think I'm coming around to your line of thinking a bit more, but boy, I do have reservations about it. Just knowing like all of a sudden you're looking at your prospect pool and it's, you know, Rony, Rony Heroven, <laughs> Nick Robertson, like, oof, it's just, it, it's a little bit spooky. Um, Miko Kokinen, of- yeah, you're really grasping at straws at that point. Oh, dude, it's, 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 it's bare. Like, you remove Matthew Nyes and I think, yeah, the Leafs probably have the worst rated prospect system in hockey. But the other thing about Timo Meyer that I've been thinking of, well, there's two things. One is, I like Yarncroc in the top six. You and I have talked about this a lot, but his numbers in the bottom six have not been very good. So there is a bit of a diminished value to me of the idea that you're bumping him down the lineup as though that like helps your bottom six more. I'm not really sure based on what we saw from him. But the thing I like about Meyer is 
how that skill set potentially fits into your power play and what that does for you. Because I think this has been the most under-discussed story of the season, has been the drop-off in the power play scoring. And yeah, it's like the Leafs still feel very threatening when they're out there. We thought that this was a problem that turned a corner last year when Spencer Carberry came in. But yeah, what's your read on the power play numbers? Because yeah, going from first to seventh, I think is a pretty big deal for this organization. Yeah, the thing with power play numbers with the Leafs is that it, it's so frustrating watching them in the regular season have a very successful power play. And then right when the playoffs start, it doesn't seem as dangerous. And, and I don't know if that's just a small sample thing and eventually it'll regress and eventually they're going to break through and score a bunch of goals in the power play the same way that Tampa Bay has done in the past or Colorado has done in the past and so run it all the way to the, the final for a championship. But the idea of bringing in a Timo Meyer. Is that where we go to the five forward power play where that's what you bring out? You put Marner at the point, you put Timo Meyer at the net front, John Tavares in the slot. I don't think the they'll slot. do that, man. I really don't. I think that the, the way they looked at it was, and having talked to Christopher Stieg, who was part of a five forward power play, who was asked to run the point like Marner, he just, he, he brought up and granted, he would admit as much that he's not nearly the caliber player Mitch Marner is, but he just talked about the amount of reps you need to be able to walk the line and feel that space. And I'm not sure the Leafs would roll that dice um, unless they were like in a, we're down a goal situation. You got to get desperate situation. I I don't know if they'll, they'll go back to that meaningful games. I think the bigger question, honestly, with like their power play is if they're ever going to move Morgan Riley off that unit. And I don't think it's too likely unless the five forward power play is what they go to. And, you did say it. Not many forwards in the NHL are capable of walking the line, the top of the blue line in the middle of the ice. It's very difficult to do. Most defensemen learn it at a very early age, the pivots, the turning. It's not something that's easy to teach. It's why as much as I'd love to see more forwards play defense, both at 5-on-4 and at 5-on-5, five five, the skating and the pivoting and the skating backwards and defending the rush and gap control, it's something that you get the reps so many times throughout your life as a defenseman that – that's why the, the, the positional difference exists, is because there's a different skill set and not many players can make that switch. I do think Mitch Marner is one of those few players who can actually do it at a very high level. I love watching him in the middle of the ice, both at 5-on-5 five five and 5-on-4. Five my favorite spot for Mitch Marner is in the middle of the ice, whether it's behind the net or at the top of the blue line. I think it's a great place to put him because he can pass both to the left side of the ice and the right side of the ice. His entire the entire arsenal of his passing is available to him because he can go anywhere with the puck. But if we're to assume that Morgan Riley runs the point when the chips are down and Mitch Marner's either on the half wall or maybe net front behind the net area. Okay. Timo Meyer's on PP two at this point. I don't want to say that's a waste, but it's not as good of a a use of his skill set as you could get out of it. I guess at five on five, you could really give him a bunch of minutes, but for fun, let's assume the Leafs don't trade for Timo Meyer. Let's assume it's someone else, maybe a lower-end forward, where they put most of their resources into defense, and it's just a, a, a third-line or a fourth-line forward that they really add. What's that going to mean? You brought up the fact that Yarncroft doesn't work in the bottom six, or at least earlier in the season, he really didn't work in the bottom six. There's a weird thing going on with the Leafs where the Kampf-Engval combination works in terms of defensively and tilting the ice. And even though they don't score a lot of goals, they score more goals in the competition consistently when they're on the ice. I know that you hate Engvall. I know that he, he bothers you. And in terms of playoff value, is his kind of perimeter-based game, is he good at getting to the inside when, when things matter? I get why people get frustrated with him. But 
I think that you need to keep Engvall Camp together on a defensive line. And I know that Camp is someone that that Sheldon Keith trusts, and he's going to want to play a bunch of minutes. So are you playing Yarncroft on a sheltered fourth line with a bit of offense? Are you playing Kerfoot on that line? I it's tricky. Where do you put Yarncroft if you do trade for a forward that you want with Tavares? All of a sudden, you have to jumble the lines up a bit, and I'm not sure if the rest of the lineup makes a lot of sense, but I, I like prioritizing my top six when I'm building a roster, and, and personally, it's uh, it's a bit tricky for me. Where do you see things landing? Yeah, I, I think that that's what's so complicated with these guys is that there's really the one impact forward out there. If he's not going to play on your top power play, I think that does diminish his value in terms of what he means to your group. And so maybe you trot out the five power play. I, I know this is kind of on the fly, but do you happen to have the numbers of what the power play was with five forwards versus what it's been with Morgan Riley or a defenseman? Here, we'll keep talking while I look it up here. But uh, the whole reason that we like the idea of it is because that's been one of the biggest problems over the last couple of playoff series, right? Is that... Yeah when things get tightened up and you're able to back off of Morgan Riley, you're able to really take away the East West pass and just collapse into the slot. That's where the Leafs are. They able to adjust in the playoffs. I know in years past been one of the biggest problems. I'm sorry that as I'm looking it up live right now, I'm no, not. No, no. Well, I was actually, you just, yeah, you can look it up. <laughs> but what I was going to say is anecdotally to me, the power play always felt far more threatening with Marner in the middle of the ice. Um, it just felt like it was less predictable with the five forwards. And I think they gave up two shorthanded goals, both of which were off those plays where it was a forward that was unable to either like keep a puck in or walk the line. And so, yeah, you're kind of looking at it. And, and I do think that you get very, very reactionary to those goals against. But to me, it was like, no, keep running those reps, keep go through those problems. You're just in a bit of a difficult spot because, yeah, you paid Morgan Riley. Those contracts absolutely do matter. He's part of your leadership core. While I've argued that he should be able to be like, I'm going to self-sacrifice this, that is a, you know, that's a tough spot to put a player in when they might be dealing with confidence issues and they, at the time, hadn't even scored a goal on the season. So, yeah, it's it's more complicated. I, I do think there is a human element that we probably ignore with these things. But what I find kind of like interesting and why I want to talk to you about this today is that to me, so much of what I see and, and granted, again, I'm a peripheral figure when it comes to the analytics world. I, you know, follow certain people. I try and do my best in terms of doing my own research just to make sure that I'm up on top of things. But the primary value is always like looking at things five on five. Everything is five on five, five on five, five on five. And, and yeah, from an analytics standpoint or from like a number standpoint, I don't know how we're supposed to kind of derive anything from a power play other than just like the percentage. And it's like, yeah. yeah, are you like, what does it look like when you do have five forwards? What are those numbers when you have five versus when you have the defenseman? And, and I think that's going to have to be something they do because you're right. Like the power play has been a real sore spot for this organization year over year come playoff time. They don't score enough goals. And I keep thinking to myself like, all right, I want to add a bottom six guy to this roster. And I dream on guys like Taves or different wingers that might be able to give you like a, some scoring punch. But ultimately, like what's going to matter in a small sample series more? Is it the guy who plays you know, 12, 13 minutes a night? Or is it going to be your power play uh, with some of the best talent on earth? And I feel like the answer is probably the latter. 
or that might be the argument where at least the Jake McCabe, you know, you can reliably count on him to play 20 minutes a night against tough competition. And even though personally, I thought Rasmus Sandin did well when Morgan Riley was out of the lineup in a second pair role. If you look at Rasmus Sandin in terms of quality competition and where does he play, where does he rank on the Leafs, he's still by far the most sheltered defenseman on this team. The only other player close to him in terms of the sheltering is Connor Timmons. So a lot of the times that kind of tells you what the coaching staff thinks of the player. I never love appealing to authority and just assuming that coaches are always right. But you also don't want to assume that they're always wrong. So the idea that Sheldon Keefe has been around this player still feels the need to shelter him. The fact that we've heard Jake McCabe's name out there a lot, where there's smoke, there's fire. The, the Leafs see what you see. They don't trust Sandine defensively. They don't want him on a pairing with Timothy Lilligram against Kucherov or against Stamkos or against Braden Point. They don't trust it. So I think realistically that Jake McCabe thing, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that ends up happening within the next week. But you did ask me five on four. I've got some numbers here for you. And one of the funny things about data analysis is that sometimes I look up things because I want it to be true. And I want to find the evidence that's going to you know, stick to my narrative. The evidence I've found here indicates that Morgan Riley, when he plays Marner on the power play, they score way more goals this season with Marner Riley together than when Marner Riley are apart. Small samples at five on four. That's a natural part of analyzing this thing. But uh, the five forward power play, according to the numbers, hasn't been as strong as the four forward power play. So uh, I'm sorry to report that our dream might not come true. Yeah, like that doesn't surprise me um, given – just like, well, first of all, the unit is still seventh in the league. Like, it's still a strong unit. I will say that I would have loved to see it a little bit longer and not have felt like it was as tenuous as, hey, you let in a goal and this is going to be done, which is sort of the way that it did feel. I, I don't know what the adjustment then needs to be. And if you were to bring in a Timo Meyer, does that mean that one of those guys might end up getting removed from it? But that is something that, yeah, I... I I am curious about, from a number standpoint, how much of these things do come down to luck, how much of these things do come down to the system. But yeah, it does feel like whatever has been happening for the Leafs this season has been like a pretty clear regression. And yeah, I think how they fix that is going to be pretty massive down the stretch, especially once they get Austin Matthews back. Hey, stay on the line. We're going to take a quick break, uh, but I want to come back with you and then finish out some of these numbers, the ones that you know you picked out, and I have one more for you, all right? Yeah, sounds great. I'll be waiting. All right. Uh, more with the Intellic after a quick break. Need a ride. Sportsnet 590, the fan, fan, All right. Numbers at the break that matter for the Leafs with the Intellic. So we went over a bunch of the five-on-five scoring stuff because um, I, I think that that is, yeah, this team needs to score more. And that is going to be the bigger question down the stretch is like, hey, how do they accomplish that reasonably? And yeah, whether or not that does involve an all-in thing. So we did that in the first half. Um, Subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars, share it, do all those things. That really helps us out. Um, But yeah, the next thing I want to know about is um, the goalie stats. Because this caught me a little bit by surprise yesterday, Ian. Um, So Sportsnet Stats tweeted out. And I know goalies are goalies and... Yes, yes, yes. But do we know how predictive high danger save percentage is? Because I thought it was pretty interesting that Ilya Samsonov is at the very top of the list. An 881 save this season in high danger areas. Um, Some of his 
uh, yeah, like a couple of the people that are right there with him. Linus Allmark has an 863, and Andre Vasilevsky has an 862. Um, but then there's also some guys like Jeremy Swayman who has an 878. So, yeah, basically this the question here is clearly this matters in hindsight, right? Like this, this has mattered at some point. It's a big stat. But um, is it predictive of anything or is this just noise? So with any goalie metric, we suck at predicting future save percentage. It's one of those things that we still haven't really solved. But that's not to say that we can't find things that are a little predictive. I mean, we're never going to get to the level we are with forwards or even defensemen. But uh, something I've always liked looking at is goals saved above expected. If you look at last year's leaders, it was Shesterkin and Vasilevsky. You look at this year's leaders, it's Allmark, Sorokin, Soros, Hellebuck, Vasilevsky, Shesterkin. It's a good stat. It's one that it passes the sniff test, and I've always liked it. And you brought up high danger save percentage. That's actually one that when you look at statistical analysis, it's actually one of the most predictive metrics, which I always found weird because there's such a small sample of actual high-danger shots that I was shocked you could actually get a big enough sample to have anything meaningful. But I remember consistently, whether it was Manny Perry back at Corsica doing some public statistical analysis, or I'm sure you love drag like Paul. He got hired by Carolina recently. I remember him doing a bunch of statistical analysis, and he would keep pointing out that high danger save percentage was his favorite stat because it was consistently year after year, one that the top goalies in the league tended to be high in, and it was one where you could typically find a few underrated goalies. And I'm not sure if that save percentage by Samsonov, I don't think it's it's sustainable. I don't think he's going to remain first in the league. But I like that you found that because that's one that us goalie nerds, when we're trying to find something that's a little bit predictive, high danger save percentage is weirdly the one that we come back to. And it's funny because I don't like high danger shots at the team level because it's not that predictive in terms of you don't get a big enough sample. You're better looking at overall scoring chances or expected goals. But for some reason, it's a decent goalie stat. So, Good on you, JD. I don't know when you became a nerd, but no, you good found on sports the stats. Goalie stats. Hey, how dare you? How dare you? You know that I look at the numbers. You know that I always take a look. You know that I always take a peek. I just don't use these things as dogma, and I also don't like to pretend like I know everything that goes into all of these stats, right? Because no I, I do a lot of the times. To be fair, well, I do a lot of the things that um, you say, like that I think people should try to avoid. And I always call it like Michael Mooring because back in the day it was like <laughs> that was one of the early lessons I learned about statistics is that if you kind of pick and choose them and you only present the ones that you want, you can really help create and strengthen a narrative, especially when you start to ignore the stuff that you don't like. And yeah, um, I do usually go into either back a take or yeah, try to support one, but it doesn't always end up being complete because I, I don't have a grasp of these things the way that you and others do, right? Like a lot of the people that I expect or respect a lot in this community. It's just that, yeah, of course you want to have it. You want to have both. I, I don't know the modern hockey fan that doesn't, but yes, I will gladly, you know, welcome my place into uh, the nerdum. Okay, let now let's hear the numbers that you did because I asked you, I told you I was going to bring you some numbers and ask you whether they matter, which ones do, which ones don't. Um, what do you have for me today? So it's a very simple stat, but we talked at the, the top about how goals are weirdly becoming a, a very predictive metric, and they never used to be. Again, shots, chances, expected goals, that's what we've used for a decade plus because in the research community, we found that those are the most predictive. But goals against 
are weirdly becoming predictive, and it's something that I'm still having to adjust my mind to because that was never the case. Hmm. Toronto's fourth in goals against per 60 right now. Now, they're right around teams like the New Jersey Devils, the Dallas Stars, the Colorado Avalanche. The only teams that are a little bit ahead of them are Carolina and Boston, which are what I would say are the two strongest teams in the NHL for my money right now. Toronto's a good defensive team. It's what I keep trying to come back to. And this is one of the things where I think we need to update our priors. I know we've talked about it. We'd like to think that because we've said it, it will become truth and everyone will accept it. But I I think we really need to look at this evidence and and admit the fact that it's not just save percentage. It's not just Samsonov going on a heater or Matt Murray turning into playoff Matt Murray when he's healthy. It's the fact that this team suppresses chances. They're taking away the high-quality things. They're taking away the East-West. I'm shocked at how good this team is defensively. I knew they were good last year. I knew they were good the year before that. But if we look at goals against, which, again, is a weirdly predictive metric now, they're a top-five defensive team in the NHL comfortably, and most people don't realize that. It's a very important stat to me because it's the goals for that they're missing. You brought up the goals for. I'll bring up the goals against. This is a good defensive team. It's, It's a fact. So, um, I think that the fan base has come around on this. I think that this is actually starting to become pretty well documented, uh, and that especially when TJ Brody is in the lineup, like if if you so I attribute this to a couple of different things. One is that the Leafs from a I think that they're definitely now in what year four of Sheldon, right? This is year four of Sheldon Keefe. He came in twenty nineteen. I believe so. I, I'll okay. fact check you real so quick. They, they've had Sheldon Keefe for a long time, and they've started to embrace like the way that he wants to play, and they've ch- kind of got this down. There is also continuity within the roster to a degree. There's a bit of maturity in the roster, but they have just elite defensive forwards across the board. Like you know, you mentioned the Camp and Engvall thing. Like I, I've never been a non-believer that Engvall is good at helping the Leafs keep the puck out of their net. I've been a non-believer of like his overall impact, especially come playoff time. And just, yeah, I think that there, there is a tenacity intensity element that does hurt you come later in the year. And when you have those kind of like defensive forwards that are all at the bottom of your lineup, um, who are analytically okay in a regular season, when you're playing a bunch of bad teams that it doesn't, it doesn't always necessarily equate to like how the game is going to change in the playoffs. And I think that's been reflected in the idea that Engvall can try to give you secondary scoring, but then he has zero goals in 17 playoff games. But if you look through the lineup, like Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, John Tavares, right? Like they're top guys, good defensive forwards, guys who play a 200 foot game. Bourne loves this stat, but like Austin Matthews, but before he got injured, led all forwards in defensive zone touches. He's having a really, really spectacular year there. Um, There's a real team buy-in to that. And then they've designed the bottom six to have a lot of forwards who are really strong defensively. Again, if like Alex Kerfoot on some nights is getting bumped down to your fourth line, it's going to be tough for you to get scored against. Their blue line, TJ Brody, very, very good. Elevates all pairings that he's a part of. They've had a bit of a breakout this season from Timothy Lilligren, which I think has really helped them. And then you also have the goaltending quotient, which is, wow, this has been much better than I think people expected, especially given the injuries to Matt Murray and to Samsonov at certain points of this year. So, like, from a across-the-board team standpoint, I actually kind of think this is my least the least of my concerns, and it's also the easiest thing to shore up, which is why, like, when you mentioned the Jake McCabe thing, I go, I, I think that does make sense for this team. A, because of one thing that you mentioned earlier, which is 
if we're talking about like from a pure minute standpoint where you can gain more, that that right there is the easiest. Like even if they add a top six forward, are they going to play as much as a McCabe or a Gavrikov? Like maybe, be pretty close. Maybe not, depending on who they end up getting in that spot. So replacing Sandine, who is the one guy that they really don't seem to trust when it comes to those heavy minutes, I, I think that that can have a pretty big effect on a team that's already great, right? Like that, a unit that is already great, a style that's already great for this team. So no, I, I think that people get it now that they're very good at that. And it's part of the reason why I think like I brought up the Samsonov thing and why people are nervous about believing in what they're seeing with him be, uh, having it be a real thing. Because they know, for the most part, this team is going to do a good job of shot suppression, as you said. Just don't have the goalie break their back, which has happened in years in years prior. So, no, I, I think that, yeah, again, as a fan base, and certainly as somebody who watches this team a lot, like that, that has become very apparent. Yeah, and you brought up TJ Brody. I think everyone knows how good he is defensively. You can very clearly see it with your eye when he's defending a two-on-one rush. He just takes away the middle of the ice. He's kind of helped me rethink the way I look at defense in terms of taking away east-west when you defend. It's so important, and that's a way to really help out your goalie. I don't have the stat on me, but Kevin Papetti on Twitter keeps putting out stats about how Timothy Lilligren, it's been however many games since he allowed a goal against. And I think against Well, Boston, it got broken broke last game, but yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I think, oh, yeah. It, got, it, got I think it got to 12. Okay, and I was I keep bringing up goals against. That's going to be the theme of this episode because, mm-hmm. again, I just can't believe that as a nerd I'm talking about goals against. It was something that we never, ever talked about. And now for defensemen especially, it's becoming a very important metric in the modern game. Timothy Lilligren suppresses goals. Do you want him on your top pair? I mean, you actually might. He, he works with Morgan Riley, weirdly. You're probably going to have Riley Brody when the chips are down, but – Timothy Lilligren should be playing big minutes for this club. He's playing well defensively. He's a good breakout passer. I love what he's been able to provide this year. Last year, Bourne had an excellent article on Lilligren where even though his expected goals numbers were excellent and his play driving and his puck moving were excellent, there were moments where he was getting beat around the net front for bad goals against. He's cleaned that up this year, and his goals against numbers are the best on the team. Love what I've seen from Lilligren. He's been excellent this year. Um. Look at us. You using metrics like goals for and goals against as your primary drivers and me loving Timothy Lilligren and believing that he should absolutely be playing way more minutes and in way more roles and that I trust him a lot. We've come a long way. I'm proud of us. Uh It's almost like sometimes there is a middle on things. Uh, Ian, uh, you know I always love the perspective. Was there anything else? You only got like two minutes. Is there anything else that you have? Uh, that you really needed to get out there, or are we good? Uh, again, I was just shocked at the break. I was trying to find some kind of evidence that the 5-4 power play, that I was looking at some kind of wrong evidence, and that Morgan Riley, because he bothers me when he takes a point shot on the power play, because I'm screaming at my TV when he makes a decision I don't agree with, I'm wondering if this is a bias that I have in player evaluation. And then Morgan Riley's offensive contributions have always been something that I've undervalued. And even though he gives up a lot of rush chances against, and I don't think he's necessarily as good as the credit he's been given in the last, let's say, five years in this market. I was always a big Jake Gardner guy, and I was frustrated that Jake Gardner was the whipping boy. Meanwhile, Morgan Riley could do no wrong, even though I thought he was giving up a lot defensively. If you look at when Morgan Riley and Mitch Marner share the ice at five on four, right now they're putting up McDavid-level numbers on the power play. Is that sustainable? Is that going to happen in the playoffs? 
I don't know, but I'm a big facts guy. I like numbers, and the facts are that Morgan Riley on that five-on-four top power play unit with Morgan Riley, Nylander, Tavares, and Matthews, it's working this year. Will it work in the playoffs? Time will tell, but Morgan Riley can man a five-on-four power play unit, and I might need to admit my bias on this one. I really wish that I didn't text with Blake Murphy so much because as you were talking, I was trying to scroll back. No, I got it. Um, as much as that might be true, you're a big fan of larger data sets. Now, granted, this was from January 21st is when Blake sent me this stat, and I haven't updated it since. But I would, yeah, take a pretty strong guess that this hasn't changed all that much. Um, 294 players have played 200-plus power play minutes since 2020. Morgan Riley, out of those 294 ranks 271st in points per game per 60, or sorry, power play goals per 60. So, like, just the goals part of this, right? Like him scoring. Um, I can tell you real quick that that's almost a meaningless stat. If you look at defensemen and predictive metrics, it's all about assists. Goals don't really Okay, well, I'll tell you this too, though. Oh, that's interesting. That is good to know. But it it does – he's 63rd in points percentage. So he's getting a lot of assists, but not many goals is what I gather. Not many goals at all. But yeah, 63rd in points percentage, all right, it's decent, but still kind of a little bit lower than you would expect for a defenseman that is on a power play unit that was, you know, like in the top five, like pretty much year over year. And Tyler Dello had some interesting research looking at how much does the, the power play quarterback at the top even matter? It's the guys on the half wall that make a difference. So mm-hmm. I know Nikita Zaitsev had a year where he put up a bunch of points passing the puck to Mitch Marner. Uh, we're running out of time and we got to go, but Morgan Riley gets a lot of assists on the power play. It's predictive and he's doing well right now on the power play. He'll probably stick there because the evidence backs him up as an elite offensive player. See, I really like that though. Goals for defensemen, not a big predictive stat for power plays. See, good no, takeaway today for our useless. audience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ian Tullock, again, hockey analyst. Always like getting to pick your brain. Thanks for coming on today, buddy. Hey, anytime, man. Happy to join you. See you, pal. There he goes. That's pretty good. Take a big stat from Blake Murphy's big stat book, apply it over to another guy's big stat book, and get a little information back. Now I'm actually a little bit – I got to say that one of my bigger takeaways from this is that maybe Morgan Riley is not as big of a problem with his power play as I think that he's been getting heat for recently. But, yeah, the the bigger thing when it comes to, like, looking at a lot of this team – is that they need to score more goals. They can easily, like, they're, they're building off of something that's already great when it comes to their defense. Like, the team defense is solid. It's just there. Every single number will back it up. Your eye test will back it up. If the goaltending holds up and it's like anything like it's been so far this season, then you should feel pretty confident about this team's ability to keep the puck out. And, and that goes back to the last couple of playoff rounds, too. Like, these guys haven't been getting barbecued. The question is going to end up being, how do you improve the scoring? The power play is going to have to be one of them because I don't think that they can be seventh or drop any lower than that. And then the other is going to have to be a little bit more goals for, like expected when it comes to their, yeah, they're, they're five on five. So how do they do that? Anyway, tune in next week to find out. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and review. A new 